Raising children is not for the weak of heart. You know, there's no greater joy on earth than the moment when you first hold a perfect child in your arms. And there's no greater sorrow other than the death of a child than when your less than perfect teenager breaks your heart. That's true for both moms and dads, and in many ways, it's true for our Heavenly Father as well. Last week, we were reminded that after walking away from our Creator and choosing to go our own way, we were adopted back into the family of God. Through His amazing grace and the sacrifice of His Son, we were given the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father, the one who had been forced to become our judge because of our rebellion became our daddy because of our willingness to repent. And not only did we enter into a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, we became heirs of his glory and fellow heirs with Christ. Obviously, that gives both our Heavenly Father and us, his adopted children, great joy and the promise of an amazing future. Until then, however, as parents and as children of God, we do have to endure some growing pains and disappointments. In fact, Paul concluded our passage last week by stating that we become fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christ gave up the glories of heaven to become a man, to walk with us on earth. And then he died. On our behalf, he paid the penalty for our sins so we could eventually join him after his return to the glories of heaven. Until then, we must still face the temporal consequences of our sin and rebellion. We must live as imperfect people, living among imperfect people, in an imperfect world. Life, even as an adopted child of God, is not a bed of roses today. Or maybe it is. We get to enjoy the beauty and fragrance of roses, but we do get stuck with the thorns of life, just like everyone else. In fact, we get stuck with additional thorns because of the world's hatred, as did Christ when the crown of thorns was placed on his head. In spite of that, Paul goes on to say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Actually, you may be more familiar with that verse as J.B. Phillips paraphrased it, and something I often quote. 
in my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. Concerning that future, Phillips goes on to write, For the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. I like that picture of waiting on tiptoe. It's something kids do as they stretch to reach that next inch. And parents do as they anticipate the future that awaits their children. It's also something we do as we await the day when we will be all that God intended from the very beginning. We anticipate that day on tiptoe. And so does all of creation. Continuing our study in Romans 8, beginning now with verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The word translated anxious longing literally means to watch with outstretched head. That's where Phillips gets his tiptoe. It's a picture of creation stretching looking, eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, nature is obviously personified here, pictured as a person, anxiously awaiting something. And what is it that creation is waiting for? It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The word revealing is the word from which we get revelation, apocalypsis. It's the full revelation, the uncovering of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for us to become all that God intends for us to be. Why? Because our failure to remain as God created us affected all of creation. When Adam sinned, even the earth was cursed. Nature was altered. Thorns and thistles began to grow. And it was ordained that man would have to toil by the sweat of his brow to get bread from the earth. No longer would man live in a perfect garden. He would live In a fallen, cursed world, even the animals were cursed. When God cursed the serpent, he said the serpent would be cursed more 
than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. That means all of creation, the earth, the plants, the animals were all affected by man's sin. All were subjected, Paul said, to futility. It's the same word that's translated vanity as in vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It means emptiness, nothingness, futility. Something going nowhere, accomplishing nothing. We were doomed to death. And creation was made slave to corruption. Now, some believe the linkage between our sin and the curse on nature indicates that there was no decay or death in the world until man sinned. If that were the case, none of the original animals could have been carnivorous and no plants would have decayed. But even in the garden, before sin, man was instructed to eat. So metabolic processes had to have been part of life right from the start. You know, God did not create us as purely spiritual beings. He made us physical beings and placed us in a physical universe, on a physical planet, and ordained that we eat physical food. And the vegetation was designed to grow and bear fruit and produce seeds that would bring forth more plants and trees and fruit. So there had to be physical processes of life and death, at least in the plant life, before the fall. And if the earth is as old as the physical evidence seems to indicate, there must have been life and death in the animal kingdom before the fall as well. Now, those who insist that the Bible teaches that all of creation was completed in six 24-hour days generally maintained that there was no death, period, before sin. And they quote Romans 5.12 to support their contention. And Romans 5.12 does say, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The focus on that verse is on man and how death came to affect man. To use that verse to insist there was no death in nature before the fall may be reading more into the text than was intended. But Paul does make it clear that nature, the entire created world, was subjected to futility. And he says, not of its own will but because of him who subjected it. You know, man was subjected to futility by his own will. He disobeyed the command of God and received the stated consequences for his choice. Nature, however, was subjected not because it did anything wrong, but because we did something wrong. We sinned, and God subjected it in hope that it would one day be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God linked nature to us so it could serve as a reminder of our sin and the promise that someday the effects of sin 
will be done away with. You know, when nature seems out of control and horrible things are happening in the world, it should remind us of the fact that sin messes everything up. The earth itself was messed up because of our sin. And I don't mean because of overpopulation or the use of fossil fuels. God personally subjected it to futility and corruption because of our sin. The storms and floods and droughts are the direct result of God's curse on the earth. Things are not now the way God originally intended, nor are they the way they will be for all eternity. Something new is on the way. And when the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, waiting for the day when it will be set free from its slavery of corruption, that tells us something A day is coming when the world will once again be as God originally created. The prophets were given a glimpse of that new earth. A new earth where wilderness will be fertile fields and deserts will rejoice and bloom. Where scorched land will be a pool and thirsty ground springs of water. A time when the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the lion will eat straw like the ox. A time of perfect peace and harmony. New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Until then, creation groans. And when we hear the howling of the wind and the rumbling of the earth, we should be reminded that things are not yet as they will be. Creation itself is waiting on tiptoe for the sons of God to be revealed. For the sons of God to become all God intends them to be. And we are waiting, too, on tiptoe. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for Why does one also hope for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Not only is creation groaning, we are groaning. Things aren't right within us. And even the Apostle Paul himself noted, that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. The wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The Spirit 
is fighting against our flesh because the flesh still wants to please itself. It's the spirit that makes us want to do right. It's the spirit that makes us want to please God. But the flesh resists the spirit. The flesh fights against the spirit. Thus, the struggle, the groaning within ourselves. But God didn't give us the spirit to make things difficult for us. He gave us the Spirit as the first fruits of what He wants to do with us. His Spirit within us is actually a taste of what we'll become when our adoption is complete, when we get a spiritual body that is equal to the wishes of the Spirit within us now. The groaning is just a reminder that we're not there yet. Someday, the struggle will be over. No longer will there be the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. No longer will we groan because we fail to do all the spirit is prompting us to do. We've been given a taste of the possibilities of spiritual life, a glimpse of what's ahead. We really can't see it yet because it's eternal and those things which are seen are temporal. We know enough to hope for the eternal. In fact, the Spirit is actually God's pledge that we will one day be spiritual beings unhindered by physical limitations. One day, this earthly tent, which is our house, will be torn down and we'll be given a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Someday, we'll grow up and be all God intends for us to be. Until then, we groan, longing for the redemption of our body. Until then, we wait expectantly on tiptoe. We know that someday we... And the children we have raised to know and love Jesus will be like the glorified Christ. And just knowing that keeps us going. We can persevere. We can put up with momentary light affliction and even parental frustration when we know eternal glory is just around the corner. The groanings of nature and the groanings within us serve as constant reminders that something better is coming. So those groanings don't depress us. They give us hope. They cause us to rise up on tiptoe, to stretch out our heads, And turn our eyes upon Jesus. If you're longing for something better than what you now have. Better than what you see in the world around you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth 
will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We live in a fallen world with the promise that someday everything is going to be made right. Because of Christ, we can face life with confidence. I trust you've entered into that relationship with him. You've turned your eyes on Jesus. Let's stand.